Okay. Uh, the question that I'm asking this morning is how do we do life with people we disagree with? I'm someone who's fairly conflict avoidant. Uh, it makes me uncomfortable to offend other people. And so I'm trying to be better at handling it well because we can't do without it. We can't do our relationships without it. We can't do marriages without it or parenting without it. And we can't work on teams uh, at our workplaces without it because all of us are unique. We all have a unique perspective on how the world works on questions like has the government handled the pandemic well or how should the government respond to residential schools? So even though we're doing life together as a church, we don't always agree on everything. More than that, there are other things which divide us. There's age, race, class, uh, being married, being single. Having disagreements, having differences which separate us is not something new in the church. We also read about it in the New Testament. In the early church, however, the major conflict they dealt with was ethnic. Their question was about Gentile, who are non-Jewish folks like me, uh, their inclusion in the church. Because for thousands of years, the Jews believed that in order to be right with God, you either had to be Jewish or follow their customs. But now some of the followers of Jesus in the New Testament are saying that actually Gentiles can be included in church and have equal access to God. And so this sparked all kinds of controversy and division started because now you had Jews looking down on Gentiles and Gentiles looking down on Jews for their arrogance and uh, the church became divided. So when we elevate the things which separate us from others to things of ultimate status, we become divided. These things become obstacles to unity. In our passage today, Paul addresses the Ephesians on how to heal disunity in their church and in the early church at large. And so we will see three things, the obstacle to unity, the accomplishment of unity, and the application of unity. First, the obstacle to unity. When we ask, what were the obstacles to unity in the early church? One of the major answers is ethnicity. Look with me in verse 11. You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. What Paul is saying is that the Gentiles, non-Jewish folks, have been labeled uncircumcised, which is a racial slur. The Jews saw themselves as the special recipients of God's favor, which is recorded in the Old Testament. But because they believed in their specialness, they despised the Gentiles. They believed that God didn't love the Gentiles. They had rules and laws which enforced total separation from them. To go into a Gentile house made a Jew unclean. If a Jewish boy or girl married a Gentile, the Jewish community carried out the funeral of that Jewish person. They didn't actually kill them, but they were as good as dead to the community. Also, it might sound strange to us, uh, especially if you're not someone who's um, familiar with the Bible or with church, that to use the word uncircumcised and uh, the circumcision to describe two people groups in that way. The reason for this is that circumcision was for Jews the primary way they discerned whether you could be a part of church. 
Their practice was that their baby boys were circumcised uh, on the eighth day, and this physically marked them as people of God. The problem is that when Gentiles who never had this practice uh, became Christians in the New Testament, they were left wondering, like, what do we have to do uh, to join church? Do we really need to do this um, in adulthood? Uh, and so the Ephesian church and uh, the church more generally, people were split into factions over this question. What do Gentiles need to do in order to join the church? On this question, some said, well, no way, Gentiles can't be saved uh, at all. While others said, well, they can join the church, uh, but they have to follow all the rules. They have to make the sacrifices, they have to follow the food laws, uh, and they have to be circumcised. And others were more moderate, and they would say, well, they can leave aside some of the sacrifices and the food laws, but they still have to be circumcised. But it was Paul who said they don't need to abstain, uh, they don't need to follow the food laws, they don't need to offer sacrifices, and most shocking of all, they don't need to be circumcised. So he took the most radical position on the question of Gentile inclusion uh, into the people of God. Also notice that the group uh, mentioned in the verse, the, those who call themselves the circumcision, thought that in order for Gentiles to be included, they had to follow all the Jewish customs and laws from the Old Testament. And so what they want is everyone to look the same, everyone to think the same, everyone to act the same. What they want is uniformity. But Paul, on the other hand, he seems to think that unity and uniformity aren't the same thing. He seems to think we can have different races, different social status, different economic status, and still be unified. Notice how Paul's way of thinking is different from our current culture, especially the current political climate. As right and left uh, are more polarized, those who lean right will tend to say that if you affirm something about someone, that means you endorse everything about them. And those who lean left will tend to say that if you disagree with something about them, that means you hate everything about them. And the picture, at least at the political extremes, is of people who mistake uniformity for unity. And so if you don't toe the line on every uh, issue, then you're canceled. This isn't just something that exists uh, in the United States, but it's here in Canada too. It's common for Christians, um, especially, to think that among all the range of political options, there's one that's obviously the Christian vote. Uh, to the degree that if you vote differently from me, then uh, I might think twice about the veracity of your faith. And the mistake being made here is that there's an assumption that there's a one-to-one -one connection between Christianity and any political party. But maybe we should remind ourselves now that Jesus wasn't white, Jesus wasn't Canadian, he wasn't conservative, he wasn't liberal. He was a minority Jew under Roman occupation. And so if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you're called to think differently. Even if we may have things which divide us, which put us into groups like age, marital status, politics, economic status, we are still called to be a unified church. The question is how? If we have all these differences, how are we brought together? Where does Paul get this idea that unity and uniformity aren't the same and that two peoples who were kept separate for hundreds of years can become one? 
The answer is through Jesus. This brings us to our second point, the accomplishment of unity. Jesus takes those who are far away and brings them near. Look with me in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Paul doesn't believe that unity and uniformity are the same because regardless of all these external superficial customs, which may make us look the same or different on the outside, there is a a deeper, truer reality. We are already one in Christ. We are already one in Christ because even though the Jewish people had the promises and the covenants and the law, they were still estranged from God and Jesus redeemed them by his sacrifice. And even though Gentiles were ignorant of God, excluded from citizenship in Israel, without hope, without God in the world, Jesus redeemed them by his sacrifice. So in verse 14, it says, he destroyed the barrier, which was between Jews and Gentiles, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. So in the Old Testament, the way that the Jewish people stayed right with God over the years was by offering sacrifices and obeying the law over and over for their sin. But this didn't cleanse the source of their sin. They had to offer sacrifices again and again and again. But because Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, he never needed to offer a sacrifice. He abolished the law with its commandments and its regulations because he obeyed it perfectly. Jew and Gentile have both been reconciled, made right with God, and not in a way that needs to happen again and again. He took our sin upon himself so that we could be free. This is the deeper, stronger source of our unity. So why did the Jews label the Gentiles as uncircumcised? What was going on there? Because for them, when they made circumcision determine who was righteous and who wasn't, it meant they could see themselves as righteous and others as sinners. It meant they didn't have to look at their own sin. So why do we look down on others? Why do we divide people into groups based on age or class or politics? Because when we do, it allows us to consider ourselves righteous and others sinners. If we say, well, uh, how people respond to government restrictions, whether they're for them or against them, makes them righteous or unrighteous, and I won't associate with anyone who thinks differently from me. Haven't we left the gospel? If we say hard work is what makes us righteous, it allows us to look down on those who don't work hard, and we justify ourselves. So for me, it would be something like um, theological conviction. Uh, That's something that I would struggle with, that if I see other people with theological convictions that I disagree with, that can quickly turn into I disagree with them and I'm better than them. But what about, would it be for you? The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Christ took away all our possibility of our self-constructed moralities, the ways in which we justify ourselves. We are all reconciled to God the same way, through his death and resurrection. If we're united in Christ and this precedes and determines all of our other commitments, How does that change how we live? Here we get to the third point, the application of unity. What does this mean for our lives? 
For Paul, it meant he was able to say that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It means that through the gospel, church is the place that will bring you into contact with someone you would never choose to hang around, single or married, rich or poor, conservative or liberal. We are all one in Christ Jesus. It means even if one person thinks vaccines are dangerous and another thinks that they're safe, they should still be able to gather around the same table because they are one in Christ Jesus. Look with me in verses 14 through 17. Here there's a repeated word. It says, he himself is our peace. He made one new man out of the two, thus making peace. He preached peace to those who were far and peace to those who were near. And because Jesus has reconciled us to God, we are able to live at peace with each other. And our peace with God brought to us by Jesus is our foundation for peace with one another. So how are we able to live at peace with each other? Look with me in verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, without hope and without God in the world. I'm willing to assume uh, most of us don't have Jewish ancestry, and that's who Paul is speaking to, people without Jewish ancestry, us. We were without hope. We were without God in the world. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are able to live at peace because we have received grace upon grace. And this changes how we relate to each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German pastor who opposed Nazi rule during World War II, wrote a short book called Life Together. And he puts it this way. As Christians, we only relate to each other in and through the gospel. When I relate to you, I remember that I am a forgiven sinner and that you are a forgiven sinner. And we have both uh, been forgiven through Jesus. So what are the implications of this? In verse 19, it says, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. Jew and Gentile are no longer foreigners and aliens, even though separated for hundreds of years, but they are fellow citizens, members of God's household, and they have Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. He is the one who gives them unity. So Pastor Paul recently told me of a time when him and his wife were in Africa and how he met a believer there. And even though so much about him and that believer uh, were different, they didn't know, uh, they probably looked differently, they spoke differently, totally different cultures. But when they found out they were both believers, it gave them an instant connection, an instant bond, because then they knew that they actually weren't foreigners. Even though they were part of different earthly countries, they were both uh, fellow citizens and members of God's household. For us, when we have differences with each other in politics, theology, discerning how to live, uh, it can be so difficult to remember that we have a prior unity and a prior commitment. And I'm not saying that those things aren't important. They definitely are, and we should discuss them uh, earnestly. But the cross of Christ unites us beyond our differences, whether we're young or old, married or single, rich or poor. And so when you find yourself thinking that your opinion or your age or your class or your relationship makes you better than someone else, I implore you to fall at the feet of Jesus. 
Remember that you were without hope and without God in the world, and while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Something else Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book is, if my sinfulness appears to me in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. Well, you might say at this point, I can't do this. This is too hard for me. I am always judging others on the basis of their politics or what they think, and I'm always confusing uniformity for unity. I've made a mess of it again and again. To you, I say, look to Jesus. Jesus died for the times that we made economics more important than him, or politics more important than him. He died for the times that we made social status more important than him or relationships more important than him. And as we sang earlier today, his mercy is more. It is his spirit and power which lives in us and helps us relate to each other in and through the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we ask for your help today as we seek to be a unified church. Please give us humility and patience and love and grace, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.